0: Before venturing into this case, I'm featuring in this episode, I want to take a minute to tell you to keep your eyes peeled for a new Patreon level. This one is only $5 and will include access to live readings bi-weekly in the Patreon community. Again, only $5 and you will have access to get your question answered twice per month. Further, the $9 and up tiers are getting another upgrade, one where we will be featuring daily affirmations to help encourage you along your own healing journey. We all know that my two favorite things here are murder and healing, a little counterintuitive, but that's okay. As I said, an official date of release is to be determined, but you know that you'll be the first to know. Additionally, the Show Up For Yourself 4th course starts on August 4th, and there are a few spots left to slide into where we will explore learning to love and value yourself, how to manifest what you desire rather than more of what you do not desire, as we all know what that feels like and how to show up for yourself in a way that allows you to feel happy and fulfilled in your life, no matter how much you still feel needs to change. So now onto the case, Casey Anthony. That's a name that we all know. And I'm assuming in the States and likely in the UK as well as Australia, we know that name. How could we not know the name of a woman who got away with killing her toddler? Have you heard the name Alice Crimmins though? This case takes us back in time a little bit to 1965. Alice Crimmins, formerly known as Alice Burke, married her high school sweetheart, Edmund Crimmins, at the sweet age of 19. Having been raised by Irish Catholic parents in the Bronx, marriage was really the only plausible way to move on out of your home and onto life. And as it would go, she and Edmund welcomed her first excuse me, their first baby boy who they named Eddie Jr. just about a year into their marriage, along with his sister Alice Marie, also known as Missy, the following year. While both are young and newlyweds as well as new parents, Eddie Sr. doesn't let this cramp his lifestyle. He would often leave Alice at home with the two young children and continue to go out drinking late into the night with his own friends. So between work and drinking with the guys, his colleagues, Eddie was rarely home, okay? And Alice was facing her new life quite alone. Alice didn't stay lonely for long, though. She took a position as a cocktail waitress, which was highly frowned upon, Especially by her good Catholic neighbors As a married woman and mother of two They didn't necessarily need the money But Alice needed the nightlife And in 1965, while this was acceptable for Eddie It wasn't so much for Alice Alice found herself truly enjoying the life of a cocktail waitress And would often stay out late into the night herself And I didn't mention it, but Alice was a beautiful redhead Who drew the attention of many around her So it was no surprise that she drew the attention of men whom she served at the bar. And some of these men she would have a sexual relationship with. She and Eddie eventually separated and he moved out to live nearby. Now, Alice's apartment was at the Regal Gardens Apartments in Kew Gardens, New York. And she's a social butterfly, okay? It was so easy for Alice to meet new people. And it seems that the media focus would be largely on her new relationships with men. Her disdain for married life and her desire for more fun. None of which are punishable offenses, but Alice, a firecracker, was coming into her own during a revolution for women, the very beginning of a revolution for women, where women were learning that it was okay to like sex, to be sexual beings, and to hold power themselves. However, the community around her wasn't as thrilled with her behavior, and her ex-husband or soon-to-be ex-husband, Eddie, wasn't pleased with her behavior either. Now, Eddie began sneaking into Alice's apartment and even went so far as to bug her room as well as her phone. He would hide in the basement and listen to her entertain men in their old bedroom. Disgusting. He was a larger man, and from what I understand, his behavior after they separated was questionable and even a little frightening to some. Eddie would show up where Alice was with seemingly no explanation as to how he knew where she was going or how he knew what she was up to. He couldn't let her go, even entering the apartment when she was gone to go through her personal things. And if that's not creepy enough, Eddie admitted to exposing himself to girls at a local park as if that was what he had been diminished to after Alice left him. Eddie kind of sounds out of control to me. Now, whether it was to be a good father or to get back at his wife for making a fool of him and a mockery of their marriage, he filed for sole custody of the two kids on June 2nd, 1965. No one knew he was treating Alice this way behind closed doors, that he was drinking as much as he was, or that he was sneaking into their old shared apartment to spy on her. So even her own mother sided with Eddie, claiming her daughter to be mentally ill, and incapable of raising children on her own. With her being as sex-crazed as she was, I'm sure her Irish Catholic mother did see her as mentally ill, though enjoying sex and male attention doesn't necessarily make you a bad mother or mentally ill. Eddie had some of Alice's closest friends and family believing he was someone else entirely. And on July 14th, 1965, just days before their July 19th custody hearing, Alice Crimmins woke up to find both of her children missing from their beds. She immediately called Eddie, begging him to tell her that he had the children, saying, don't you play games with me. Eddie, don't fool around. Do you have them? Please don't do this to me, Eddie. They're missing. This whole investigation was botched from the very beginning. I mean, the very beginning. When Detective Peering had already stated to his partner upon showing up to the apartment, you take the husband and I'll take the bitch, in reference to Alice, it was already determined that she was not going to state a chance in this investigation. According to Alice, she fed her children around 7.30 that evening a dinner of string beans and veal and earlier that day, they had lunch in a park only six blocks from their apartment and stopped at Seaver's Delicatessen for something for dinner. After dinner, the kids and Alice hopped into the car and went for a drive to hopefully spot the new apartment that her soon-to-be ex-husband had just moved into, so she, too, was spying on Eddie. She put the children to bed around nine, and after doing so, she proceeded to clean up the apartment. She was going to have an agency visiting soon to check her place out prior to the custody hearing, so Alice threw away all of her wine and liquor bottles, which would be found by the detectives the next day. Alice claimed that her children's screen had been punctured and she was going to replace it, but had set it back in the window with the intention of replacing it later. After the kids were asleep, Alice latched them into their room with a small hook and key latch and went about her business around the home, cleaning before the inspection until she sat down to watch some TV. The lock was supposedly on the outside of the door to keep Eddie Jr. from braiding the refrigerator. And I'm not sure if this is really acceptable because all I can imagine is there being a fire and those kids not being able to get out. And one of my littles was a refrigerator when he was smaller. We locked the fridge, albeit with the plastic lock that like slid in and then you like clicked the other piece into place. And this more than likely wasn't around in the 60s But nonetheless, this seems odd to me To lock your children into their rooms Not murderous, maybe, but definitely odd Maybe like a mom who was looking for her privacy, though Because that I can understand, at least But still, the danger of that lock has me shook Absolutely no way I'm way too afraid of a house fire To ever do something like that to my kids Plus, like, wouldn't they be terrified If they couldn't get out of their room? But anyway, that's not the point here Alice says, that she sat down to watch TV around 1030 that night when a boyfriend of hers, Joe, we're going to skip last names here, called to invite her out to a bar on Long Island. She declined as she didn't have a sitter for the kids. I guess that hook and latch wasn't going to do it for her. And another one of her boyfriends was out not returning her call, Tony. So truly, I think she was sitting home stewing over this, but despite that, she couldn't go meet Joe because she had no sitter. And then around midnight, she helped Eddie Jr. make a midnight bathroom trip. She tried to get Missy to wake up and use the bathroom, but couldn't. So she took their dog, Brandy, for a short walk to relieve herself. Evidently, the dog was pregnant and returned home to sit on the front stoop for a little bit. As she was getting ready for bed, Eddie called her to yell about this maid that was making an allegation that she had not been paid by Alice. And the maid was going to testify against her. So Eddie essentially called her to rile her up, okay? And... It basically worked. So she then takes Brady for another walk to calm down and goes to bed around 3.30 in the morning. Eddie was jealous, and not only did he make that very known, but like I said, he had her under surveillance, and this is what he spent most of his free time doing, drinking with his colleagues and spying on Alice. P.S. When he called to anger her, you better believe he was quite intoxicated as well. Evidently, his only alibi, after admitting to having driven past her house around 2.45 a.m. to check on her, seeing that she was awake, and then calling to yell about the maid, he then went home, watched a movie, and fell asleep. And even then, the police were able to verify that while the movie was indeed on that day, it was actually on much earlier in the evening than he claimed it had been. So he lied and police caught him in a lie and they excused it, saying basically, like, oh, I'm sure he just got the times mixed up or whatever. So being home and watching a movie, reading a book drunk, and falling asleep by 4 a.m. are completely unacceptable alibis, unacceptable alibis in my book. But I'm not a male in the 60s with a detective looking for a promotion and turning a woman's life upside down after her children were missing and found and murdered. So what do I know? So, yep, they were murdered. And later that same day, Detective Peering drove Alice to identify the body of her strangled and deceased baby girl in an open lot on 162nd Street, roughly eight blocks from Alice's apartment. Poor Alice had no idea what she was about to see and has taken harsh criticism for getting all dolled up for the police presence but I've also read that she suffered from an incredible from incredible acne as a teenager and wouldn't ever be seen without a full face of makeup as she was ashamed of the condition of her skin. For those who have never been self-conscious about their skin like that, maybe it's difficult to understand. And for those who would say, what does it matter?" her children are missing, Some people's trauma response could very well be to keep things as normal as possible or in a panic like this, almost act as if nothing is wrong, nothing's happening, right? So to refuse to accept what's right in front of them and proceed as if everything's normal for fear of accepting the truth. So I do not feel or believe that Alice was putting on a show for the cameras. I believe she was someone with very low self-confidence that was made even worse by the scrutiny she was under as a confused and grieving mother, also going through a divorce from a man who was practically stalking her just because she liked sex does not make her a bad mother or a bad person. And also, I just want to say there are sources that talk about how she just broke down crying in front of the cameras and then like got it together when she walked away. I am someone who doesn't cry when people expect me to and full-on loses my shit when it's completely unexpected, so I feel like you can't really put a finger on how someone is supposed to grieve because everybody is so different. Anyway, Eddie Jr. was found on July 19th on an embankment near a major expressway and he was found by, even more unfortunately, a ten-year-old boy and his father. His poor little body was in such a state of decay at this point that his cause of death was not able to be determined, nor could medical examiners begin to know exactly how long he was out there. Missy's stomach contents, however, left more in a question. If you recall, Alice claimed to have fed her kids veal and string beans from that local delicatessen. However, in Missy's stomach, a macaroni-like substance was found. And when this is reported, Detective Peerings insisted that despite not mentioning it during the initial search, and I say search lightly, of the residence, he had seen a box of manicotti noodles. I truly believe here that he misspoke and meant to say macaroni, especially after the autopsy showed macaroni in her belly. And then he stuck with it because he was full of shit anyway. So in addition to the noodles, there were all of the bottles of liquor that were thrown out. And just really quick back to the noodles. I think it's entirely possible that Alice fed her daughter veal and her daughter was like, I'm not hungry. I'm not eating that. Right? Like My kids, I make dinner for everybody. <laughs> That's a lie. My husband makes dinner for everybody. And so often they're like, oh, I'm not eating that. And they don't, or they'll scrounge and they'll get whatever leftovers are in the fridge, or maybe they'll eat like a peanut butter and jelly. So your kids don't always eat what was made for them. I don't really see it as strange that Alice made feel maybe Missy wouldn't eat it. Maybe Alice said, you eat this or nothing. And that's the way that it went, right? So anyway, in addition to the noodles, there were all of the bottles of liquor that were thrown out, which appeared to police as if Alice had been on a bender when truly she was cleaning out the cabinets. Coupled with her active sex life, her little black book of men, and her primped and perfect appearance while her children were missing, Detective Peerings was convinced he had his killer. The original scene was never photographed, and Detective Peerings was said to have been acting as if he were leading some sort of like entertainment rather than documenting and examining a crime scene. So he did so with such zeal and excitement rather than professionalism and integrity. There is a baby stroller and a box placed underneath the children's window that was never taken into custody for examination. The dresser in front of the window was dusted for prints before it was photographed, ruining any indication of window entry or exiting that would have been there, and very few photos were taken of the crime scene at all. Eddie Sr. was never looked at twice, let alone seen as suspicious despite the fact that he was bugging his ex-wife's phone, bursting in on her while she was having sex, and showing his penis to young girls in a public place. Why would the police look at him? He seems like a stand-up man. He wasn't a woman with a taste for sex. So Alice was arrested, tried, and convicted for the murder of both of her children. Other leads were never chased as diligently as Alice's was, and yes, there were actually other leads. Police went so far as to recruit one of her boyfriends, Joe, as a spy for them, hoping that she would confess to the murders, but she never did. And in fact, Never had anything even remotely interesting to say about the murders, likely because she didn't commit them. Not only did police recruit Joe, but they also bugged her apartment and spied on her through the third floor of a hospital pharmacy that was like a neighboring building, hoping to catch anything incriminating whatsoever. Alice was well aware of what was going on, though, and evidently gave them quite a show when she started having her male guests backed into her apartment. And for those of you who think it's strange or outright disgusting that she's, quote, behaving like this when her children were just found murdered, I would invite you to consider this as a trauma response yet again. So many would turn to alcohol or drugs to numb the loss of their children, and we would think that that's like, oh, my God, well, I'm not surprised they're doing that, but sex acts as a drug as well, and it's very possible and likely That she was already using sex to numb out from her miserable marriage to an overbearing ogre as well as his stalking that persisted even after their marriage was on its way out the door. According to some sources, police would even let Eddie Sr. know that Alice had a guest over so that he could interrupt her escapades. Truly revolting. I believe she was numb well before these children were taken from her and murdered, a shell of a person just trying to survive her tepid life and sick of fulfilling the expectation of others. A grand jury convened when police had let this drag out for over a year, likely because they couldn't necessarily pin it on her, my opinion. And a witness was located who had written in an anonymous tip about seeing a woman with a man and bundles that looked like children. She saw them from her apartment and could hear the woman telling the man to hurry up or they'd be seen. And the woman's name was Sophie. And word on word around town identifies her as someone who was a bit of a storyteller and not really a reliable witness. And yet she is considered a credible witness that prosecution has to go with other than, of course, Joe, the recruited spy who had seemingly turned on Alice, she was really the only credible witness. So in the courtroom, he testified that Alice told him that she would rather see her children dead than with Eddie Sr., a statement that would otherwise have gone unnoticed. Also, he testified that she wept to him while in a hotel room, that she had killed the kids, and that the children would understand what she was saving them from. Interestingly, he never revealed this to detectives. It was never caught on recording, even though he was their spy. But I digress. I could go down so many rabbit holes and into so many twists and turns of all of the complete garbage that they put Alice through. But what I do want you to hear is that I do not believe for one second that she killed those children. But if she didn't, who did? What I see, the way that I feel Is this that this happened? Is that I can see a man outside of their window. And this is what I saw when I connected to Missy and a little bit to Eddie Jr., but mostly it was Missy that I felt I was connecting to. So I could see a man outside of their window who was lowering the screen. He was kind of fussing around out there, but he had probably already known that the window was having issues because one, he used to live there, and two, it was easily knocked off when he touched it and it came right down. I believe this person is Eddie Sr. standing outside their window, drunk, wanting his kids just to piss Alice off, just because he was losing his mind not being able to have her and yelling at her about the maid wasn't enough. He wasn't done with his psycho behavior that evening, and I can hear him whispering to the kids, who of course didn't flinch because that's their daddy. I feel that he got them out of the room under the guise of playing a game and like, Quote, surprising mommy in some way that seemed exciting to the kids. It's the middle of the night and dad shows up out of the blue. I feel like Eddie Jr. was a little apprehensive, but of course he goes. That's his dad. Alice fed the kids veal, like I said, like a hundred times now. You know, these kids were fed veal, but that's not what was found in Missy's stomach. It was noodles. So I feel she complained to her dad that she was hungry. And originally his plan was just to take the kids and have them at his place. But he was Alice was, excuse me, Missy was complaining about being hungry. And while his intention was just to scare Alice for a moment because of the men she was having over, and she evidently wasn't scared straight yet, as she was still having them by, despite him chasing them out of the apartment after she would he would sneak in the basement and barge in on them during intercourse or show up whenever he wanted to. He was drunk. I believe he took Missy back to his place and Eddie Jr. obviously. And after having beer all day and then drinking gin and tonics at his usual bar until late into the evening, and then of course harassing Alice, I think Missy started asking to go back to her bed and wondering why they left mommy's at night. And she was confused. I mean, she was only four years old and I feel that this kind of infuriated Eddie Sr. And that while Eddie Jr. had fallen asleep at his dad's, I feel like he's like curled up on a chair or on a couch. Missy wanted her mom and drunk Eddie Sr. snapped, and I think he strangled her. And I can't say for certain, but I feel that the pajamas that were mentioned in other reports that were like around her neck, I think it was the sleeves. I believe that they didn't necessarily kill her. That's not what was used to kill her. I think that the bruising would show hand marks or like marks of just his of his hands. And then I think that he used a shirt to like make absolutely certain that she was gone As he panicked because he had been drinking, Eddie Jr., he had no choice. I feel like Missy was easier because he kept hearing, Mommy, I want Mommy, I want Mommy, where's Mommy, I miss Mommy. And I really think that he kind of almost saw Alice while he was strangling his poor daughter. And he was pissed. Missy was there. Alice wasn't and he wasn't in a lucid state of mind. And Eddie Jr., I feel like more heaviness with him. And I kept hearing that there wasn't really any blood. And I get the image of like a pillow coming over him. And it's possible that Eddie Sr. suffocated him while he slept. So by the time Alice called him, I feel he had barely gotten back home from leaving their poor little bodies, probably still a little intoxicated. And how how did he conceal all of this? Well, Number one, the police never really looked at him as a suspect. Even if they, quote, did, they didn't really. He was the poor, good Catholic being left by his sex-crazed lunatic wife who had clearly killed their children, right? So she could continue her disgraceful lifestyle. How did he keep a straight face and never confess, though? Come on. (laughs) There are some things that we aren't meant to understand, and that's because we don't think like people who are capable of compartmentalizing such things. I do not think it was someone that they didn't know. And I so very much hear daddy with a sweet little voice and my heart breaks for those poor little kids. I don't, and for Alice, and I don't believe Eddie Jr. ever really knew what was coming though. I think for him, it was almost like falling asleep because he fell asleep and then what happened, happened. As for Alice, she served 10 years after her conviction and was paroled in 1977. She married big, rich, and fancy Tony. And was said to have lived on a yacht for a while down in Florida, all over the place, likely just trying to forget an entire lifetime of horror and the loss of her beautiful children, as well as being villainized for such a horrific crime that she didn't commit. My friends, I would implore you to watch A Crime to Remember, Season 1, Episode 1. There is a neighbor who obviously lived nearby to Alice during this time, and she gives a really interesting perspective on this case. So there are a lot of things that the police did to Alice and a lot of events that came up around this that I couldn't even begin to cover without going well over the time that I like to keep these episodes around. So if you want to learn more about it, I, of course, will link some podcasts that I like about this case and go watch A Crime to Remember, Alice Crimmins. I believe it is on Amazon Prime, okay? And you all, thank you for tuning in, and I will catch you on the next episode of Murder and Mediumship. Bye, guys.